didn't open them to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. Uh, we're continuing in our series on 1 Corinthians, uh, what has been a really good series. But I just want to make one quick mention as you're flipping to 1 Corinthians 3 uh, that I forgot to say is that because uh, Dan has kids in our youth ministry, he has to run and go pick them up from the youth camp. So we're not going to be having a closing song other than what we always close with, which is the doxology. But we will do that at the end after communion. But I just wanted to, uh, so you guys aren't thinking anything's weird or different here. Uh, it's just the circumstances of this Sunday. But as I said, we're going through 1 Corinthians. It's been a wild ride. It's been a great book. If any of you have read 1 Corinthians, you know that it's just uh, an utterly scary book. Uh, it talks about a lot of hard things. It has a lot of hard truths, but it has a lot of important truths that we need to hear as a church. And we haven't really got to the fun stuff yet. Like we've been hammering home on wisdom, which is really good, and it's intentional of Paul. We need the wisdom of God to handle what comes next. But I I just want to start giving these precursors now, and you're going to hear this throughout the weeks. When we get to the hard stuff, let's have conversations after. If you don't agree, you don't understand, this isn't a church where you just have to accept everything I say. If you need clarification, let's have a, co let's have a coffee. Let's talk after service. Um, as long as at the end of the day you agree I'm right, it will all be good. Okay, I'm just joking. But it will be an interesting ride as a church as we are in the book of Corinthians now probably till the end of November, okay? So it will be a really good time. And we have titled this series Unentitled, and that's the way we're going, that we as Christians shouldn't be an entitled people, but an unentitled people. So as we look at verses 10 to 23, I just want to give you a little bit of context because if you're anything like me, you forget things as weeks go to weeks and months. Um, so for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at how Paul has been challenging the Corinthians and us about the silliness of divisions that we allow within the church that has been plaguing the church and how they were acting fleshly last week we talked about or merely human and they were relying and operating out of the wisdom of man out of the wisdom of the world rather than godly wisdom. And today he wants to bring it all home for the church. He kind of wants to drive the nail in the head. He'll touch on wisdom a little bit uh, going forward, but this is kind of where we are at the end of his long argument, and he wants to set the record straight one last time. And then he'll move on to some really crazy subjects, like uh, ones that you can just look ahead for yourself and get prayed up for. Uh, but the church in Corinth has been a church now for about three years. Paul has been away from that church for maybe about half that time. It's kind of debated, but somewhere between 18 months. He's been away from the church since he has planted it. And when he came to Corinth, First, back in AD 55, when he proclaimed the gospel, he planted that church, as he referred to last week, and then another gentleman by the name of Apollos came. He was a faithful, fiery preacher, and he really grew, uh, really watered and, and saw growth under God's hand at the church. And Paul starts off today's verses after we looked at all of that last week saying this. He says in verse 10, I should turn that on. Uh, in verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and on someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Now, back in chapter 2, if you remember, Paul characterized his preaching this way. He said in chapter 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or in other words, what he is saying is that the foundation that we build upon, our preaching all this, is 
Jesus Christ. Jesus is the centrality of the church. He is the center. He is our foundation that we build upon. And then in verse 11 of our chapter today, it says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul will take this a step further. He says, he calls Jesus the cornerstone of the foundation, that he's the all in all, the end of all, he's the focal point, the one whom the church lives for, strives for, the one whom we long to praise and build our individual lives upon, and not just the church. All other foundations, he's saying, is really no foundation at all. They will not stand. If you're a Drumheller native, you'll understand this. It'd be like, like if you saw a big pile of bentonite and go, you know what, I'm going to build my house there. I'm going to put a really big foundation all in this bentonite because bentonite's slippery and I'm going to build this really tall house on it. But every time it rains and you don't have good irrigation, guess what's going to happen? Your house is going to, it's going to flood, it's going to move, it's going to shift, it's going to crack. Many of you have told me horror stories, which is why I strive to buy in Riverside here, but that's not, uh, that's not a pitch for buying here in Drumheller. But anyways, you don't want to build your life upon the sand, upon the bent night of life. It might seem secure, but it will shift when the storms come. Now the metaphor continues in verse 12 to 15, and he mentions different kinds of building materials. So he talked about the foundation. Pay attention to your Bible. We're gonna look, everything I talk about is going to be seen right there. He talks about the foundation, and now he's going to go on and talk about the building material that we use, starting in verse 12. Now if anyone builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built upon the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer a loss, though he himself will be saved only through the fire. That's a pretty intense passage. So as I said, Paul is talking about different types of building materials that we can use in our life as a church that we can put upon the foundation that is Christ. He mentions gold, he mentions silver, and he mentions precious stones. And he also says wood, hay, and straw. And he says upon that day... And that day, which is referenced in verse 13, is always biblical language for the judgment day of God. On that day, the kind of building that you have erected, the kind of building that you have built, will be revealed. Or in other words, the types of materials that you have invested in to build with will be revealed. Were they good materials or were they poor materials? Will everything just turn out to be a sham in the end. Now the context of this section, if we're being honest to the text, is talking directly to church leaders, not to lay people, not to just average congregation members. We're going to get there in a minute. He, we will focus on that, but for right now, he's talking to church leaders like me, like Paul, who was just up here praying, like all of our elders, like all of our deacons, like all of you who are serving at our welcome desk or serving as, as our AV leaders, all these people who are leading and serving within the church. This is who he's talking to, those who are charged with building upon the foundation of Jesus. In some ministers, in some ministries, 
They will withstand the fire, he's saying, and will be rewarded, and others will be consumed through the flames, although the minister himself, the leader himself, he says, will be saved. And just a fun fact to jump out of text here for a moment. This is the main text that the Roman Catholics use for their doctrine of purgatory. But this is not talking about purgatory. You're going to have to do a lot of squinting to make that work within the context of this text. That's not what Paul is talking about. The fire in the metaphors does not purge a person. Look at your text. Does it say it purges a person? It says it nowhere. It does not purge a person. It, rather, what it does is it tests the quality of the work of that person. The quality, specifically their work in building the church. And what's it going to do? It's going to reveal whether it's to be good or it's going to expose if it was poor. It's not a passage about post-mortem purification at all. That is an improper understanding. And so with that, now that we see the proper context that Paul is warning people who hold leadership roles within the church, he is warning churches and people not to attempt anything foolish here. It matters what we do within these four walls. So he warns the church to only build upon the true foundation, which is the foundation of Jesus Christ. And we must use materials that are consistent with the foundation. You don't want to use materials that will not stand on this foundation. In other words, there is only one foundation as a recap. Who is that? It's Jesus by which to build our life upon, to build our church upon. And regarding material, it must be consistent with who Jesus is. Studying the personal work of Jesus, who he is, and then striving to build with material that is consistent with Christ. And you might be thinking, well, what might that be? Well, fundamentally, first and foremost, it must start with truthful teaching. You must have within your pulpit men who will preach the unadulterated word of God. And you must live upon the unadulterated word of God. And so what we use in the church, we use language like doctrine. Doctrine just means teaching. So we want good doctrine. I call it the three Ds. We want good doctrine... That leads to devotion, which is your life and relationship with Jesus that is rooted upon the solid word of God. And then that devotion will lead to doxology, or that's just a fancy word for worship. So as you ground yourself in Christ and in his word, you will ground your your relationship in him and it will thrive and grow as you face the temptations and sufferings of this life, which will produce in you a sweet worship, a beautiful worship, or a doxology. So doctrine, devotion, doxology. That's what we're after. But even though the direct context of this passage is for pastors and ministries and leaders within the church, there is a general principle here for all of us. And this general principle can best be communicated through a few questions, such as this. What are you building? What are you building in your life? Think on that. What are you striving to build? And and with that question, is Jesus truly your foundation that you're building upon? Or are you building within the bentonite? Are you building within the sand? And what materials are you using to build upon him? All of this matters, and we're going to come back to these questions near the end of the sermon. But for now, in verse 12 to 15, the fire involved is the testing performance of a person's work and ministry. And in this case, it's the state of their soul is not in question. 
It's about the reward. So if you're reading this in context, what Paul wants you to focus on is not the fact of the fire, really, but the fact of the reward. What's go- are you going to be rewarded for your work? Whether you will take the fruits of your labor to heaven or not. Can we take this building with us to heaven? No. But there is something that we can take to heaven with us. And we'll answer that in just a moment. But before I explain the reward part, I just want to hammer home the metaphor of the fire one last time. And the easiest way for you to understand this, and it's really fun, is to think of the three little pigs. Ever hear that story? The three little pigs, right? Okay, so how it goes, right, is let's just put it in biblical terms, right? Uh, Some of us, we build in our lives with straw. Some of us use wood. And other of us, the wise ones, we use brick, right? And a lot of us use straw and wood before we ever started using brick and had to learn the hard way, right? As Norman always jokes around with, we we go to the school of hard knocks, right? We got to learn the hard way. But when the time of judgment comes, and and let's say he huffs and he puffs, and I'm going to blow your house down. In that time, the material that you use to build your life will be exposed. If you built with straw, it will blow down. But if you built with wood, it will, or sorry, with brick, it will withstand the pressures of testing. And that's what we are after. And in all tellings of the story, the pig, well, not in all, some are morbid, don't read those ones. But uh, in most tellings of the story, all the three little pigs survive, okay? But there was still massive loss that they received. And this is what Paul is talking about. Sure, you can build this big fancy ministry. You can, it can be with all these lesser materials, but it's all going to burn up. It's all going to go up in the smoke. You're going you're to go to heaven, sure. But you're going to get there with your coattails burning in a sense. That's what he's saying. So with that, what are you building upon? What are you building with? Will it not just withstand the pressures of life? But will it also withstand the testing of God? Or will it all just be proven to be a sham? But what is the reward that Paul is talking about in these verses? What, what is he getting at here? And, and something that we always believe, that you should believe as a Christian, is something called tota scriptura, which means we believe in the entire Bible, meaning we don't um, de- uh, determine our faith on one verse alone. We can use the whole of Scripture because all of Scripture is in unity. It is all speaking about the same thing. And all of Scripture can be used to help interpret Scripture. That's a basic principle as you're studying the Bible. Use passages to help interpret other passages. So going to first the last, oh wow, Thessalonians, there we go, chapter 2, 19 to 20, we see Paul, the same author as Corinthians, say this, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? This is what he says to the Thessalonians. Is it not you Is it not you, believers of Thessalonica? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So you see the gold, the silver, and the precious stones that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians is actually souls that are being saved by the gospel. The reward that we have 
that will follow us to heaven is lost souls being saved. People who were lost, who were in the kingdom of darkness, and now have been transferred into the kingdom of light. We have had, who've had their lives and their hearts transformed by the power of the gospel. That's the fruit of a faithful ministry, that souls are being saved by the power of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is talking about here. That's what we should be focused on as a church. So you may be wondering then, well, well if, if lost souls are the, the precious stones, the silver and the gold, then what is the wood, straw, and hay? And these things, remember, you've got to read and pay attention to context. This is one letter. There was no chapters or verses when it was written. We put those in there later for convenience. You've got to follow the train of thought. What those things would have been would be what Paul has been hammering against in all of his previous chapters up to this point about not putting your hope in human leaders, not putting your hope in human success, not putting your hope in human wisdom. And what Paul is saying here is that human wisdom, human success, all that stuff, guess what? It looks good. It might build your church. It might get you really fancy and well-known. It's going to burn. It's going to go up in smoke, and it will not last. Who cares how big your church is? Who cares if anyone ever hears my teachings or not? Who cares if, if your pastor gets invited to conference gigs or not? Those are good elements. Those things are things that God can use. Don't hear me wrong. But those things are not signs of a healthy church. Just because there's lots of butts in the seats does not mean the church is healthy. There are things we in our human wisdom measure success by. And, but true biblical success fundamentally is that we're seeing lost souls saved. That we are seeing disciples, you who are followers of Jesus, who are investing in the lives of other people and making disciples, who then those disciples will make disciples and those disciples will make disciples. If that never happened, you wouldn't be sitting here today. We need to be making disciples that make disciples. There is no good that comes out of a faithless Christian. There is no good that comes out of a faithless church. All that's left at the end is a lot of lost souls. And gradually in chapter 3, Paul has been turning up the heat on us. It's getting a little warm in here. Not, right, not physically. We actually have the AC on this week. But uh, initially, he pictured the church as a field. If you remember last week, uh, Christian leaders as farm workers, he said, I planted a seed, right? What did Apollos do? He watered, and then God bring the growth. He's using all these agricultural um, uh, examples for us. Then he portrayed it as a house this week, as Christian leaders, as the builder, that we should be using uh, 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 good materials. And some might suffer loss if they build carelessly, despite ultimately being saved. We saw that between verses 10 to 15. And, uh, but in both cases, the final salvation of the leader wasn't under threat. But now in verses 16 to 23, that changes. The church is now described as the dwelling place of God himself. Let's read together. Starting in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? That's not hyper, uh, hyperbole. 
That is true. If you are a believer, God's Spirit dwells within you at the point of salvation. As soon as you turn your life to Christ, boom, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit right away. The Spirit of God is in the church's corporate midst. He is in our midst right now, today, if you feel it or not, which makes individual Christians the bricks, the stones, and the pillars of the church. Or to return to Paul's verbiage here in our verses today, we are the gold, we are the silver, some of you are more silver than others. It's okay. I'm just kidding. We are the gold, we are the silver, and we are the precious stones that make up God's temple. And we need the silver. Don't hear me wrong. And because the Bible is unified, we see that the Apostle Peter in his letter calls Christians something similar. Because again, the Bible talks about the same things in all sections. It says in 1 Peter 2, 4-5, As you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Did you hear that? It's not just the pastor who's the holy priest. You are all the holy priesthood, the priesthood of all believers to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church, therefore, is made up of spirit-indwelt believers. They are the precious building materials as a, that a faithful pastor and a faithful church is after. We are not to build with dead things, things that are not alive. The world uses standards for success that God does not. Dead things such as fame, such as building, such as wealth, etc., etc., those are the wrong building materials that we don't have in view here. All of that stuff, although they're good, they work, and God can use them, they're all going to go up in smoke. But what won't go up in smoke is saved souls. Seeing your neighbor with you in the kingdom of Christ. Seeing your lost family member with you in the kingdom of Christ. That stuff won't go up in smoke. That will carry on with you into glory as you hear those words from Christ. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And then as we go to verse 17, it implies that there are some leaders and teachers not only using wrong materials, but are even attempting to destroy and take down God's work. Just look at for yourself. It says in 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is what? Holy. And you are that temple. So what you see is that God will deal with those people on Judgment Day. We love to try to get revenge. We love to try to get even. But we don't have to. God will deal with all the wickedness on Judgment Day. And in verse 18 to 23, Paul returns to the subject of contrasting wisdom with the, of this age with the wisdom of God. And there's major differences between the two. Starting in verse 18, he says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. Clearly we see again... Clearly we see again that we, he's been hammering this point that he's been coming back to week after week. Paul keeps coming back to this subject and Paul wants us and Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that the wisdom that we have in Christ is contrary to the wisdom of this world. It's foolishness to those who are perishing and because it's foolishness, because they won't understand it, they will hate you for it. 
When you live it, when you promote it, when you teach it, you will be hated by the world. Because the truth of the gospel is foolishness to the world. The world killed Christ, and now we're called to go live as ambassadors, and we expect everyone just to give us a pat on the back. But they crucified her follower. And he says, because I was hated, you will also be hated. Because of the simple, foolish message. Just making simple statements like, I believe that the word of God is the infallible, unchanging word which has been proven time and time again with earliest manuscripts that have not been changed from A.D. 30, 30 years since Christ was dying, which means eyewitnesses were still alive when the Bible was being written, and it has not been changed, or calling out sin and teaching what Christ has taught, even making simple statements on human sexuality, like promoting Jesus as the only way to salvation. Those are foolish things to the world. And when you believe these things, and when you teach, these things, you will be hated. The world will not want to be your friend. You are seen as the town idiot when you hold to this as the moral compass and truth of our life. You are told that you're closed-minded. You're told that you're bigoted. You, when you follow Christ, it's not to make your life easier. If that's what you've signed up for, you've, you've, you've followed the wrong path. You will be seen as the town idiot. Now, there's lots of joy and peace and, and amazingness with God, but it does not necessarily make the world love you more. But here's the caveat, because here's where Christians fail time and time again. This does not give you a license to be rude. This does not give you a license to run around town and beat over people, hold signs on corners, and look for fights. At that point, the world hates you not because of Christ, but rather because you're a jerk. And that's on you. And there is a major difference of standing on your conviction that is rooted in the unchanging word and lovingly teaching that without compromise in a way that reflects Jesus and how he engaged the world. They called him a friend of sinners for a reason. How he engaged the world will get you hated, might even get you crucified, but for the right reasons. Just being rude for the sake of being rude or making a point because you have an axe to grind, well, sorry, friend, that doesn't get, that, that, that's on you. That's why they hate you. That's not on Jesus. And as we said last week, it's time to grow up. It's time to stop being immature. Christians are to be known by their love. And that's the love that the Bible teaches us, not the love that the world teaches us because the definition of love that the world puts forward is not the definition of the Bible. And we, we, but when we do this, when we love like Christ has called us to love, doesn't mean we get to be belligerent or rude because they will hate us for our simple, foolish message. But let's continue breaking down our passage as we get close to closing. Looking at verse 19, we see that Paul quotes Job, the wisdom book of Job. And then in verse 21, he quotes from Psalm 94. And Psalm 94 is interesting. You should read it later. The context of Psalm 94 is the audacity of the proud man and their rule. And God knows who the, those proud men are. He knows what they're after. He knows what they're pursuing. And, and, and to use the final uh, words from that psalm, God says he will quote-unquote wipe them all out, and then Paul in verse 21 closes uh, chapter 3 by once again rebuking Corinthian church for attracting, attaching sorry, themselves to specific leaders. Let's read in verse 21. It says, let no one boast in men, 
For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Peter there, uh, or, uh, or the world or life or death or the present or the future are all yours, he says. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Oh, did I get out of order here? Uh, there we go. Uh, there we go. Yeah, And you are Christ, and Christ is God. So stop boasting. And stop attaching yourself to people. That's what he's saying. Because that makes no sense. Because in the argument of Paul, what he's saying is that you have all things in Jesus Christ. You are to be satisfied by Christ alone. There is no need within the church to have tribalism. So let me close with some applications from our text. I think this particular text, just to hit it from the forefront of its actual context, is that every pastor, every elder, every deacon, every church, and every leader in ministry should be frightened by these verses in a good way. What do you do and how you do it and the motivation behind why you do it is to be of your chief concern. It has, if it has anything for you to gain more money, any more power, any prestige, personal gain, or whatever it might be, that pastor, that elder, that deacon, that church, that ministry is in trouble. Sure, they'll get into heaven, Paul's saying, but they will do so with their coattails burning, like being rescued out of a, a, bu- a burning building. But I want, what I want to close with is providing the particular principles of this text and broadening them to encourage you and me to look at our individual lives, to look at what we are doing and how we are doing it. First of all, what foundation are you building your life upon? Second of all, what materials are you using to build? How does one know if he or she is using gold or silver or precious stones or if they're using what Paul says, the foolish ones with wood, hay, or straw? And such an inquiry, inquiry, uh, such a search, I'll just say it that way now, needs to begin first with the assessment of the foundation. We have to begin there. Jesus addresses that directly for us in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house upon the bentonite, upon the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So the the key there is if a life that is not built upon Jesus as the rock, as your foundation, is a disaster. It's a disaster. Perhaps maybe not in this life. A lot of us, we get good at navigating reasonably well with a faulty foundation, but it's disaster for sure in the life that comes next. And that's the life that lasts forever. So if you are here today, myself included, we need to get our foundation right. But then what? How do we distinguish the materials that come, that come next, that we build with? How does one know if he or she are using the right materials? Now, as a reminder, I want to just point out anyone for here, we are addressing Christians at this moment. For one's foundation must be Jesus Christ before you can do anything in Jesus' name. 
So if you're here and you're an unbeliever, I don't want you to be concerned with your materials that you're building with right now. You need to be looking at your foundation and seeking to get it right. Meaning Christ needs to become the foundation of your life. Uh, Acts 2, 38, uh, Peter gives us clear directions how we get our foundation right. This is what he says. He says, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or attend yourself to what Paul says in Acts 16.31. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. You need Jesus as your foundation. Only salvation is found in Christ alone. All other roads won't lead you to God. They will lead you to destruction. So consider Christ today. You who are here and are yet to believe and call upon the name of Jesus, believe and consider his name today and you will be saved and you will receive the Holy Spirit. But for us who do have Christ as our foundation that is built upon Christ and we've surrendered our lives to him, I have two questions for you. The first one is this. Do you know what you have? The Corinthians were looking for a foundation that would provide them with an identity. And we have seen in previous chapters that they sought to build the foundation upon various Christian leaders. Right? I follow Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. They were wanting to build their lives upon human leaders. And, I, and in this text, Paul makes it clear that none of these leaders were ever meant to function as foundations. I or the other elders or any other leader in our church are not meant to function as your foundation. We will mess it up, we will screw it up, and we will fail and we will hurt you. Just give it a little more time. And if your salvation is on me, well, it's going to crumble. So in this text, he makes it clear. None of us are to have a foundation on human leaders. Rather, we already have a foundation in Christ that is an identity forming foundation. And Christ laid the foundation in his death and resurrection, and it's unshakable. People might forget it, people might neglect it, people might take it for granted, people might disregard it, but the truth remains unchanged. Christ is our one sure foundation upon which a life and a community of believers can be built. We already have all things in Christ. All things have been given to us to this community in Christ. So rather than saying, I belong to Paul or I belong to Aaron, I don't know why you would ever say that, you ought to be saying, Paul belongs to us. Aaron belongs to us. He is a servant leader who has been given to this church as a gift. And you can't send the gift back, sorry. <laughs> we don't have to divide over leaders in our church because all the leaders are gifts from the same God. They don't have, he's saying, Corinthians, you don't have to demolish yourself in the pursuit of the world because the world is already yours. It's already yours in Christ. Life is not something to be achieved or earned. It's already yours in Christ. Death is not something that you need to dread. It has already been conquered in Christ Jesus. The present and the future you can fully embrace without worry, anxiety, or alarm because it's already yours. And on top of all of this, church, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. He says in verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and the Holy Spirit lives within you? The very Spirit of God, the one who searches the depths of God and dwells in our midst and ensures that the building holds together, filling it with life and beauty of God. If you were raised with a gospel of works, reject it. 
Your salvation is not based upon your good works about, oh, I didn't, I didn't curse this time when I stubbed my toe. I didn't miss a Sunday service. I memorized more scripture. Your salvation's not based upon that. Now, this isn't a license for you to go on sinning. Read Romans 5, 6, and 7. But what it says is that you are secure in Christ because of Christ's life. You have Christ's righteousness. You're not going to get to heaven and say, I did it on my own. Did you see I memorized the whole book of Romans? No. Because if you get there on your own merit, Christ is going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. But Christ is your merit that carries on into heaven. You will stand before God not for your works, but you will be judged upon the works of Christ that are perfect. You are secure in Jesus, Christian. Live that way. Yes, you have responsibility in your life. But you, you, and yes, you're going to fail because we all fail. But the Holy Spirit is living in you. And guess what the Bible says? God is faithful when you are not. Meaning when you mess it up, Holy Spirit is there to hold your foundation together, to hold your house together. You just need to build your life upon Christ. And the second question is, do you know whose you are? Verse 23 says, and if you are Christ, Christ is God's, and the centrality of our resurrection lies in this. We are Christ, and Christ is God's. We belong to him. We are his possession. We are Christ's treasure. He purchased us with a high price with the shedding of his blood. Who do not have to fear that the temple will be destroyed and, uh, because the temple was already destroyed, right? John 2, 18 to 22 says, the Jews were talking to Jesus, what signs do you show us of doing these things? What did Jesus say? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Uh, and then he says, uh, then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build the temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the judgment has already been passed. The temple has already been demolished. God's iconic wisdom is this. Is this is that the very destruction of the temple of Christ's body that would become the foundation of the temple of God's Holy Spirit building, which is the church. We, God's building. God is so committed to this resurrection or restoration project that he has given up his own life to lay the foundation, ensuring that all things are ours. Life, death, and even the world itself. So let me conclude with this, with an illustration from sports that I'm not good at, but I'll try my best for you sports guys out there. We're in playoff hockey season. The Flames didn't make it because they're stuck. But uh, um, if you are playing, say we were a hockey team, we're going for the cup. All of us are on the same team. We all have a shot of winning it of all, but each player has to do his part or her part. We have a similar identity because we're all on the same team. We have our individual roles that we must do. We must focus on our individual giftings. We would have our harmonious interactions. Everyone does what he or she needs to do to build each other up. We would have an identical goal. We want the Stanley Cup, or we want to see lives changed by the power of the gospel. That's what's driving us. That's what's pushing us. We want to see disciples being made. So we have this unified thing in mind. We want the reward. And we're all on the same team. 
So I might be good at this, and i got to serve faithfully there. And he might be good at that, so he has to serve faithfully there. And we make up the body of Christ. We're all on the same team. We all have the same goal. But here's the difference, is that with Christ, we've already won the Stanley Cup. The victory's already been won with Christ. I say this time and time again here, that as Christians, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. We get to already enjoy the spoils of war. We get to enjoy the spoils of Christ as our victor. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and let's take some communion. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you, O Lord, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Father, that you are large enough to be our foundation. Father, we don't have to go to lesser foundations like human leaders or human wisdom or success to build our lives upon. But, Father, we can all go to you. We can build our lives upon Christ, the solid rock that will not crack, that will not shift. And, Father, so I pray as we go to remember today your life, your death, and your resurrection. May this just be a memory and a reminder, O Lord, that we need and must build our lives upon you and the materials we use father must be materials that are consistent with the person and nature of jesus christ father continue to bless and use this church and bless those who are here today and bless pastor tyler as he makes his closing sermon and and, and stuff over there at the youth retreat in jesus name amen